firefighters develop this sense that they're responsible, that they're capable. So when them, they themselves are struggling or going through a difficult time, it, they're even more ashamed. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service just like you from coast to coast. It's not well known outside the fire service, but there is a suicide crisis among firefighters. We're now to the point that there are more suicides each year than line-of-duty deaths. In 2016, for example, 89 firefighters were killed in the line of duty, but 130 committed suicide. The trend's been growing for several years now. A 2015 survey of more than 4,000 first responders found that 6.6% had attempted suicide. That's more than 10 times the rate of the general population. What's driving this trend? And more importantly, what can we do to stop it? We'll ask our guest today what she thinks. Dina Ali is a captain in the Raleigh, North Carolina Fire Department. She's been there for 10 years. Before that, she was a police officer. She's a grad student at the University of North Carolina, where she is focusing on firefighter suicides. And Dina Ali joins me now to look at the problem and discuss some solutions. Thanks for being on Code 3 today. Thanks for having me, Scott. You've called the increasing number of suicides among firefighters a deep, dark secret. Why is that? Well, when I first started looking into it, it was brought to my attention from one of our chief officers. He asked me to look into it after I approached him looking for a topic that I could research that could benefit the fire service. And when he asked me to look into it, it caught me off guard because we had never discussed firefighter suicides. It was just not something that was talked about. And it was a topic that most people weren't comfortable talking about. And as I started to research it and learn more, I realized how prevalent it was. And like you said, firefighters are more likely to die by suicide each year than in the line of duty. So that's pretty much the rationale behind it being considered a dark secret because it's happening. And until a couple years ago, we just weren't talking about it. Now, we've talked about behavioral health on this show before. How do we address the stigma that comes with a problem like this? Really, the best way to do it is to simply talk about it. And we're doing a really good job of that now. I wholeheartedly believe that. I've seen a huge shift in the last couple of years. It's not an embarrassing subject to talk about. It's not something to be shamed about. You know, five years ago, if a firefighter died by suicide, people didn't spend a lot of time talking about that person. They kind of wrote that person off, and it was kind of hushed, and it was a secret, and nobody wanted to understand it. They kind of wanted to blame that person and associate their death with something wrong with them without looking at any other factors. Now, when somebody in the fire service dies by suicide, we are talking about that person. 
we're not honoring them in a way that we say what they did was okay, but we're honoring them by trying to understand why they made that difficult decision and what led them there. So why is this happening? I mean, haven't firefighters always seen traumatic events and been part of emotionally difficult situations? Oh, absolutely. From the beginning of time, firefighters see things that most people don't see. And what's ironic and what is a myth behind firefighter suicides is that people want to associate it with strictly trauma and post-traumatic stress. They don't look at any of the other factors And some of those other factors are actually the factors that are causing firefighters to die by suicide. Because now, if they have stress from an incident, it's okay to admit it. It's okay to talk about it. However, if they have stress from their home life, if they're going through a divorce, if they're depressed, if they're having relationship issues, they feel like those problems do not deserve the same amount of attention. Furthermore, they feel like if they do talk about those problems, they're really going to be seen as weak. So what I see the problem being is the mere fact that firefighters who are dealing with any sort of mental health disorders or mental health distress, they're ashamed and they're afraid to talk about it. So you're saying they have the same problems as the rest of the population, and then you stack the trauma they deal with on top of that. Exactly. On top of that, they have the trauma, and then they have that responsibility to take care of people. They feel responsible for taking care of their families, for being able to show up at work and respond to calls. You know, something we talk about a lot is the fact that when somebody is in a suicidal crisis or when somebody is in a behavioral health crisis, they call us. We respond to those people, yet most firefighters never had proper training on how to deal with people in crisis. And so firefighters develop this sense that they're responsible, that they're capable. So when them, they themselves are struggling or going through a difficult time, they're even more ashamed. And then there are other factors, such as the alleged bullying in the firefighter Nicole Mittendorf case. Do we know how much of suicidal behavior is driven by maltreatment like that? I don't think there's an exact number on it, but it is definitely a strong uh, contributing circumstance and contributing factor. Dr. Sabia, when she first did her research on firefighter suicide, and that research was completed in 2007, and she published a 50-page document. And what's ironic is if you go back and look at that document 10 years ago, everything that she said in it is stuff that we're finally starting to recognize. And one of the things she said was people who are ostracized or People who are different and are not quite accepted, meaning uh, maybe in some firehouses, females not quite being accepted or minorities. So that is definitely a factor. Then are there symptoms of the kind of depression that leads to suicide that we can watch out for? Something that in the last couple of years I've looked at and I've kind of shied away from. Initially, when I got obsessed with learning more about firefighter suicide and trying to figure out why it's happening and how to prevent it, I was so focused on looking for those risk factors and warning signs so that we can recognize it in somebody else. But what I've learned is the risk factors are present in just about everybody. And there are so many risk factors, so many of them. So if we try to focus on recognizing those risk factors, we're going to end up with a lot more false positives 
then we are going to be able to differentiate the difference between that false positive and somebody who's actually in a suicidal crisis. So I personally shied away from trying to look at risk factors and trying to be able to pinpoint that person and try to change the focus on creating an environment to where we can all recognize that mental health disorders, depression, um, sleep disorders, alcoholism, those are all very common among the firefighting population. And we need to have resources available so that people can know where to go and people aren't ashamed. Now, there are a few uh, risk factors and warning signs that are going to be more obvious when the person is closer to making that decision to die by suicide, such as isolation and withdrawal. But I, I personally and truly believe that us as firefighters, we do a much better job of hiding those than the general population, meaning we know that if we show any weakness or we let anybody know that there's a problem or if we admit to feeling suicidal or depressed, that all eyes are going to be on us and we might be pulled from duty. So we're going to hide all of those signs and it's going to make it even harder for other people to notice them. Does that make much sense? It does. And it brings up an interesting point because you want to be cognizant of the problems, but you don't want to be hovering going, are you okay today? How are you today? How do you feel today? Exactly. Exactly. Because when people recognize that you're doing that, they're going to avoid you. They're going to put up even bigger walls and shut up. Exactly. You know, one of the things that we talk about, for example, um, I recently made captain and on the assessment center, there's always a personnel problem. And when preparing for that personnel problem, they always uh, give you one of those scenarios where the proper answer is refer to EAP. <laughs> and right. And what I learned with that was if anybody mentions um, depression, alcoholism, marital problems, uh, things aren't right. The right answer is to immediately say refer to EAP and then you get all the points and you get promoted. And sadly, that's the worst answer because if you refer somebody to EAP and other people see that that's what happens, they're never ever going to let you know that anything is wrong. And then moreover, if they do get referred to EAP, they're going to go to EAP and say everything that they have to say to come back to work. Right. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I had a problem that's taken care of. Exactly. What we want is for officers, for fellow firefighters, just to say, hey, I'm here. Are, are you okay? Do you need to talk? And something that we learned, especially when we do peer support, is there's a big difference between asking somebody, hey, man, how are you doing? Versus, no, seriously, how are you doing? When you come back and you let them know that you're sincere, man, that's a big relief for somebody who is actually looking to open up. Because most of the time, people who are suffering and struggling they really want to open up. They want to talk to somebody. They want to get it out there, but they're scared to death that it's going to be to the wrong person or that they're going to be made fun of. But if you can let them know, hey, I actually care and I'm here for you, you can make a big difference in somebody else. Now, I'm curious how you personally would deal with this. Do you feel like because of what you've learned, you're in a better position to say, hey, what's going on? And, know, and have them know that you're not going to immediately run to someone else and say, Joe's got a problem, we better have him sent over. Right. I, I think that there are a handful of people who know how much work that I've put into this and what it matters to me. So 
Yeah, I've had people that have personally reached out to me just wanting to talk or wanting to know some resources. So that, that you know, of course, is awesome. But something I've noticed is, and I'm not one of these people, but I found there are some people who are just natural, gifted peer supporters. They know how to make somebody comfortable, and they know how to let somebody know that they care. And I've seen it like you, me, I had to sit through a two day class and learn the secrets, like (laughs) active listening, you know, not interrupting people, not trying to formulate an answer before they finish talking. But there are some people who just are so natural at it and so gifted. And so the biggest thing is not for me to say, hey, look at me, I'm doing all this, come to me, but to say, hey, this is our team. These are our people and try to and hopefully have buy in because of that. So then if your engineer has a legitimate problem, he comes to you, he talks to you, and you say to yourself, this is real, how do you deal with it? Well, I'll actually give you an example of a situation where I thought that I dealt with it terribly. I had an individual who, he actually had to resign from his job. I don't know all the details behind that, but then he also was going through a divorce, and he was extremely depressed, distressed. And he contacted me and wanted to talk. And while I was talking to him, I could hear he had um, like you could hear glass in the background, with, like ice cubes. I could tell he was drinking and everything he was saying was telling me that this guy needs professional help. I'm not enough to help him. And I, I tried to refer him. I, I gave him, you know, some contacts for people to talk to, but I continued to talk to him. And when I get off the phone with him, I was like, man, I. I wish he would contact somebody because I'm so worried about him. I don't think that talking to me was enough. Well, about five months later, he reached out to me and, you know, he's gotten a new job and he's doing a lot better. And he told me that just being able to talk to somebody who was non-judgmental and who was there for him made a huge difference. And he thanked me for being there. So, you know, five months prior, I felt like a total failure and felt like I did not do anything for this person. But then to learn that just by being there for them, not judging them and giving them the opportunity to you know, get whatever they needed off their chest and to know that I'd be there for them was big. So now today I take that knowledge and if I do talk to somebody and it's, it's more than I can handle, I always try to give people information on counselors and therapists because that's something that I've learned is just invaluable. Being able to talk to a therapist is huge and I think Everybody should go talk to a therapist twice a month, once a month. That will make a big difference in a lot of people's lives. But I know that not a lot of people are going to do that. So I try to refer everybody I talk to to a therapist. I try to get them information. But I know that most people aren't going to do it. But I've learned that if I'm just there for those people and I let them know that I'm there, that that's that's enough at times. Because sometimes people just need somebody to talk to. They need to know that they're not alone and they need to be able to get what's on their chest off their chest. You've taken the training. You have an interest in helping people with this. So I imagine your crew would probably not be too nervous about going to you specifically. But what if my captain is one of those crusty old guys who says, suck it up. How do do I deal with that? Well, <laughs> I mean, I mean do, I, do I call you? We hope. So what we've done is we've created a peer support team that is outside of our department. And we've included, it, it's regional based. So it, we've actually, it's statewide now. It's called North Carolina Peer Support, but we've divided it. And we've created a resource that is outside of individual departments. So, I mean, we do recognize that there are going to be some co- company officers who don't get it and don't have the buy-in. 
So we make that resource available to where you don't have to go to your company officer. You can actually reach out elsewhere. But sometimes it's not the company officer that has to be there for you. You can just be somebody on your crew. Oh, so appear within your shift, maybe. Oh, absolutely. Well, it seems like there's some movement in the right direction. How do you feel about the future? Do you feel like changes are coming fast enough to stem the tide of suicide? I think I see a lot of change, and it has me really optimistic. For example, I see no need for peer support teams in five years because I think that we are all going to be aware of the need just to be there for each other. And so in in agencies, you're going to have several members who recognize that and are open to talking. But I also recognize how difficult and complex the mind is and how difficult it is to reduce and remove stigma from anything. You know, when I first started doing this, I felt like the biggest hypocrite because, you know, there's, there's no reason for this to be something that I'm passionate about unless I was personally connected or affected by it. And I I went through a time where I was personally affected by this. And no matter how much research I did and how much educating people I was doing, I was still scared to reach out or to admit any sort of weakness within myself. So I recognize that it's still going to take time because it's really hard for people to admit weakness or to admit that they need help. So um, I'm optimistic that we're moving in the right direction. But I also know that it's going to be a while before we can see a a major change in rates of suicide. All right, Dina Ali, thanks for your efforts and thanks for talking with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And there is a lot more information on firefighter suicide and possible ways to prevent it on our website at code3podcast.com slash suicide. Check it out. Are you ready for trivia? Who invented the fire hydrant and when? I'll have the answer right after this. Now's your chance to get your hands on Code 3 t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Show your support for the podcast that supports firefighters from coast to coast. Just go to Code3podcast.com and click on the Code 3 store link. Or go to Code3podcast.com slash shop and tell the world that you're a Code 3 fan. Here's the answer to your trivia question. Frederick Graff, the chief engineer of the Philadelphia Waterworks, is credited with patenting the first modern fire hydrant. That was in 1801. Sadly, there is no official record of his patent. That's because the U.S. Patent Office was destroyed in 1836 by, you guessed it, a fire. A little irony there if you like that sort of thing. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll be here. Until then, I'm Scott Orr, and I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.